Welcome back to this week's episode of the Deeper Cut Podcast, a podcast ministry of Mercy Hill Presbyterian Church in Glassboro, New Jersey. Good to be with you again this week. My name is Tim Pasek. I'm one of the ruling elders at Mercy Hill, and I'm joined by my my co-host and our pastor and my fellow elder and brother in Christ, Phil Henry. Phil, good to be with you again this week in your study. Good morning, Tim. How are you today? I'm I'm doing well. I think I might be a little grouchy today, Tim. I'm, not, I'm not sure. It's a Monday, and I hit some turbulence in the start of my week. And based on our pre-podcast conversation, you might have hit some fairly traditional Monday crud as you were transitioning to your work week. Yeah, it's a Monday, as they say. So I, I woke up to uh, my animal having had my dog. I, I'm a dog owner. I love our dog, but he had some trouble with his, um, mm. some overnight troubles. Let mm-hmm. me just leave it in those generic if terms. If you're a dog owner, you know what Phil is talking about. So, But they weren't as bad as they could have been. Okay. But my daughter was forced to deal with the dog trouble, and that set her back this morning. And my dog is getting a little older, Tim. It's sad, mm. but... But we love him. He's been a, a, a welcomed and honored guest in this studio on he a has. couple of occasions. So, he has. Um, I, love him. I love him, too. I'm sorry to hear the troubles this morning, but hope, <laughs> hopefully we can uh, turn things around here in the next 45 minutes or so. I think so. <clears throat> so we, um, we're coming into to this week finishing, still in First Peter. You know, we've been going through First Peter as a church um, since the beginning of the calendar year. I think we're n- nine weeks in, is that correct? Sounds about right. Um, but this was the third week in a mini-series that you've been preaching within First Peter on um, uh, the community of the, of the believers, mm-hmm. essentially. I forget what you called the... Christian community is the, the title for this mini-series, and... It's based on my belief that the presence of the, the phrase, the communion of saints in the Apostles' Creed, means that our call to be in community together is not an add-on, but part of the essential and non-negotiable apostolic faith. Hmm. So when I profess a belief in the communion of saints, I'm... I'm recognizing that there's no such thing as kind of an independent free agent sort of Christianity. Hmm. As my dad says, Christianity is a team sport. Amen. And in First Peter, I think if I recall, you're kind of getting into that angle with Peter's talking about the brotherhood. Is that correct? Brotherhood is one word he uses. He, he also is, is intentional in his use of the word house and household. Hmm. In a couple of ways, um, one of his uses of household is the so-called household code, which we're going to get into in a couple of weeks, where he talks about how slaves and masters are to relate to one another, hmm. husbands and wives are to relate to one another, and then uh, the brothers and sisters in Christ in the community at large are to relate to one another, essentially First Peter um, to. 13 through like 
317 or 321, mm-hmm. maybe 313, somewhere in there. Okay. So there's, a, there's a household unit right. that somewhat uh, mirrors up to the, the household code in Colossians and in Ephesians. But he appears to be contrasting, because the word for stranger is par oikos, uh, someone who's alongside or outside the house. So he, he appears to be uh, summoning us in the very first verse to be thinking about how we are outside the house when it comes to human society, but inside the house when it comes to God's new society hmm. and the tensions that those two things create. Hmm. And so by thinking about community, particularly in, in the first section of the letter, um, by concentrating in these three weeks on community, I think Peter is setting us up to say, you all need to have a very tight household relationship from the gospel so that when I start talking about the household of Roman society, um, you're ready because it's not going to be easy what mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you to do. Mm-hmm. That's a helpful kind of recap. Um, the, the first two series or the first two sermons in the in the three part mini series were the first one was um genuine Gen- love genuine love right? and last week was growing, growing in, in grace. grace and this week was people of praise mm-hmm. were your sermon titles mm-hmm. so um i don't think we need to delve into them any more deeply because i think you basically just summarized this mm-hmm. past two weeks and in, mm-hmm. in one for us so um I'd encourage you, listener, if if you have not heard those sermons um, or even the deeper cut um, episodes on on those sermons, everything's posted. Please go check them out. Um, certainly, this is not a podcast that requires you to listen to the older episodes in order to to keep up with what we're talking about. We're not in the going linearly per se, other than we're following um, what's being preached on Sunday morning, but each conversation is kind of its own individual unit, so you won't be lost for the rest of our time if, if you didn't listen to the previous ones. But certainly it would be helpful to have some context if you have the time to go check those out. So um, what you just mentioned, Phil, I'm just going to th- throw us right into your sermon because what you just said in terms of um, us being on the outside of kind of society, earthly society, being, being on the inside of God's household. Um, you hit that a couple of times in your sermon this week, mm-hmm. thinking specifically of resurrected stones, and you used, uh, at the beginning, uh, that was your first point, and then at the end you kind of came back to it of God almost chiseling away the parts of us mm-hmm. that are not fit for the kingdom so that we do fit into his kingdom. Right. Right. And I don't want to give too much away, but um, I thought that was a great, just kind of a great recapturing of what you were talking about a little bit yesterday. Right. Um, maybe you could just quickly, you, I asked you to summarize two weeks. Maybe I'll just ask you, can you give us your three points from yesterday and um, just a real simple description of what you meant by those. So that way it kind of centers our conversation. Sure. From memory, this is difficult. Well, um, no, I, I remember <laughs> I remember clearly, but 
in terms of what I want to say first, when I read the passage, or when I told my wife what the passage was, and she, and she read it, she didn't get to hear the sermon yesterday. She was helping in children's church. So we discussed the sermon sometimes on Sunday afternoons, and she read it out loud for that sermon discussion. And her comment was, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And I think I probably knew that, but it was really neat to hear that from her. Hmm. And, you know, one of the things that we men love about our Christian wives is their faith and their love of the Lord in its different qualities and unique aspects that's unique from ours. In this case, Polly and I, actually, we both love for, I think, similar, but also perhaps different reasons. We both love this passage of Scripture. And um, I, I, I found myself, as I often do, Tim, struggling to know how I could speak on this text in, in a way that does it justice, hmm. because it's such, such a, a, a massive collection of biblical truth, concentrated biblical truth, mm-hmm that covers so much of the Christian life and so much of God and Christ that uh, it's intimidating to sometimes to know what to say. Um, so in terms of deciding what to say, which gets to my three points, I, I chose, not quite at random, but I, I basically chose three images that the text seems to point out from the Old Testament that describe kind of one of the kind of the main call to action from the text, which is you should declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9. So the entire passage seems to move up to that call to action, mm-hmm. i.e., you need to be a people of praise. So what images does it use to, as a basis for that? You are a, a living stone, a resurrected stone. You're a royal priesthood or a holy priesthood. And you are a, a redeemed rebel, which is essentially that amazing summary of Hosea in First uh, Peter 2.10. In, in one verse, he summarizes an entire book of the Old Testament. So... Um, that's the sermon in a nutshell, is these three uh, interlocking images or connected ideas that tell us kind of both why and how we are to be a people of praise. Hmm. I feel like, um, you know, having been one of the hearers of the sermon, there was a, this one in particular out of the three in the miniseries was... Um, uh, I'm trying to find the right words felt like a a preaching to an us if you will Mm -hmm. Um, which was helpful for me you know in terms of thinking through what Peter's trying to say to us and what God is trying to say to us through your preaching yesterday at Mercy Hill, and that this is an implication for us as a whole, as a whole church, 
certainly, I mean, you, you, you preached to the church as a collective the past two weeks too, but this one being a people of praise mm-hmm. was, was very communal, I guess, in its nature um, and in its directive mm-hmm. towards us. And so I found myself kind of thinking about my part within the church as you were going through and, and expositing the text and, and going through these images that Peter uses, thinking of some of the struggles I have, some of the struggles we have as a church, um, why that might be, you know, your first point uh, of living stones or resurrected stones and um, utilizing the idea that, that Peter brings out that you know, Jesus, who was the cornerstone, was rejected by men, but approved in the sight of God. And and so, co- actually coming back to kind of where we started this podcast, we, like Jesus, have been, we're on the inside of God's house because of Jesus, and therefore we're on the outside of the world. Um, that w- should cause us and does require us to kind of be radically accepting of those within the household of God. And that's a, it came to my mind as you were preaching and I'm thinking, this seems like a very almost controversial thing to say at this point in time because radical acceptance is everywhere. Mm-hmm. You need to accept everything about everyone. And if you don't give in to the nth degree, then you are, you have some type of phobia, essentially. Mm-hmm. Make it up. It, it's a phobia. Mm-hmm. If you, if you, if you're not accepting of, of, of every single thing, of every single right. person. Um, and that is by no means what I, what I am suggesting or encouraging um, right now. But what I am saying is that I feel like the text is telling me, or, or God was speaking to me into my heart yesterday as you were preaching, that within the church, within Christ's household, within within God's household, we do have to be accepting of one another and that's not just like oh i'm okay with it but it's like i i have to love all of my brothers and sisters with all of their sin with all their flaws and them to me as well and that's like a really hard and scary thing to do because it requires vulnerability you talked about that a little bit in your um application points it requires us to be vulnerable with one another requires us to say hard things at times um it seems like that's something that the world struggles with at this point, but mm-hmm. certainly within the church. I think, at least in my mind, I'm like, I want to be humble. I want to be gentle. I want to be gracious. I don't want to say hard things. I don't want to let people know of where my, where my struggles are. Um, and kind of that's completely counterintuitive mm-hmm. to, to, or counterproductive for what God is calling us to. Yeah, it's a good point. So your name is Timothy, honor God. And the word time or entime is throughout this whole series on, it's actually a favorite word of Tim, or of Peter's, but particularly in these last three sermons, it, it appears a number of times. And so when it, when it says that, uh, that, the, that it was chosen and precious, hmm. um, the Holy Spirit through Peter is saying that the stone that was rejected by men is highly honored by God. 
And then if you look at verse 6, it then says, therefore, you who believe, what does it say? Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Is that what you're referring to in verse 6? Right. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. Is, will not be put to shame. And then read verse 7. Yeah, so the honor is for you who believe. Right, so the honor. Mm -hmm. So the way the ESV puts it there is, uh, the honor is for you who believe. But is for is supplied by the translation. It literally just says, you who believe, honor. So God shows honor to those who believe in the, in the stone. He is highly honored. Hmm. In other words, the honor which belongs to the living stone, capital S, is conferred on all who believe in him to be the living stone, thereby transforming us into living stones like him. So how could we possibly dishonor the one whom God has chosen to honor? And even those who, who don't yet, aren't yet honored in that way, they're, they're seeking Christ or not yet believing, but they, they come to us. They're, there's a sort of faith-filled, love-driven honor that we show even to the dishonorable, which becomes kind of a countercultural apologetic for people who live as we do in the sight of unbelievers, yet with our hope fixed on the city which is coming down from above. Hmm. So, I guess putting it in a nutshell, the world isn't nearly as tolerant as it, as it thinks hmm. or that it should be, uh, except the, the radical, the root level acceptance isn't quite there. Um, one of the cars with the yellow, e blue and yellow equal sign passed me today and two other cars crossing a double yellow line. And then in the, as it came up to the traffic signal, pulled out into the turn lane, passed four cars, cut in front of the fifth car in the front of the lane and turned right in front of them. So that was how equal we were. Mm. <laughs> I guess you could take a number of lessons from that. One is, I'm a very judgmental driver. <laughs> two is, don't put bumper stickers you on your... You lived in New Jersey for quite a while now, yeah. though, so... Two, don't put bumper stickers on your car. It'll come back to bite you. <laughs> <laughs> so take what lesson you want from that anecdote. That's true. I mean, we struggle with that, too, even within the, within the church, certainly. Not maybe not the aggressive driving, but, or at least to that extent, but just, you know, really loving one another. Um, uh, you know, you're, you're the other image. One of the other images that Peter uses in this text is a royal priesthood. And, um, in my, my Bible, daily Bible reading, I've been going through Leviticus. I think I mentioned this last week. And so, a lot of talk about the priests mm -hmm. in Leviticus, obviously, and um, thinking as I've been reading through Leviticus, I kept thinking to myself, "Who would want this job? This seems like such a daunt. Like it's scary. You can't screw anything up. It's very difficult. 
There's blood everywhere from all the sacrifices, you know. If someone has a disease, you're the one that goes and checks on it. You're like, this is not the job that I no, want that no. I want to have. But then when I think about it, that's the the those are the people that God was using to love his people. Mm-hmm. Like they were doing the things that that were required to to please God with mm-hmm. his people. And we're doing the same thing thing you know we're, we're not we're not the the high priest that's jesus but we're called to be holy we're called to love one another we're called to roll up our sleeves and go you know kind of mm-hmm. get in there mm-hmm. um in a in a different way you know i'm not suggesting that we go back to the old testament sacrificial system or mm-hmm. something like that but you know what i mean right um bring it into into the new the new covenant and uh you know, I had to kind of take a step back the other day in my reading and go, man, I got to get my, my head straight here because I am, I am a priest. I, like, I am... God, this was before you even, you even preached yesterday, you know. Um, and even though that is daunting to some extent, and as an elder, I experience this a lot, um, as you do, Phil, where, you know, we have people in the church who have needs sometimes it's physical ailments sometimes it's marital problems or um you know familial problems with with kids or you know all kinds of manners of kind of emergencies and and crises that we're doing our best and i often feel unequipped and unprepared and unworthy of trying to step into the situations and frankly selfishly like I really don't want to, I really mm-hmm. don't want to do this. But that is not being a people of praise. No. At all. And that's not showing genuine love. And that's certainly not growing in grace. So, you know, these three sermons that you've preached in the past couple of weeks have really hit home hard for me. Um in terms of what what is God actually calling us to do? And what is he equipping us to do? It's not like he just dumps this on us and says, Hey, you know, go figure it out. Um, good luck. Mm-hmm. You know. I fear I, I've gone off on a tangent now, but no, it's 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 good. It's a good. I like the way you're making the the message personal, and uh, it it was a hard sermon to preach for me, and so it it's it's helpful to hear as I'm you know as you're letting me and I, I know our listeners agree as you let us into your to how the spirit is working on you and convicting you and challenging your thinking. And, you know, there's a good kind of, there's a good daydreaming that happens in, in a, in a, in a good sermon will cause your, your mind to wander proact, productive wandering Mm -hmm. in musings and meditations on, well, how does this apply to me? Mm -hmm. And so, um, I know now well enough having preached for many years that the far off look in people's eyes doesn't mean they're just sort of thinking about the Eagles or NASCAR or the pot roast in uh, the crock pot or whatever, but it sometimes is a reflection of how God is working on our, our sanctified imaginations to help us imagine a a better us. Mm. So, um, I appreciate you letting us into that a little bit. Also, and I like the way how you connect 
the preached word with your own personal devotions and, and God will often create stitchings and, and webbings, um, you know, kind of fruitful webbings between yeah. those things. What did you think of the, the reference to Amy Coney Barrett? Um, you, you, do you recall that part of the news cycle a couple years back or was that, did that a, a little bit, I caught it kind of after the fact. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I remember a little bit, I, I certainly wasn't keeping up with the goings on and that's typically par for the course with okay. me. I'm kind of the last to know on, on most, okay. on most things. So in a but, nut, in a nutshell, Amy Coney Barrett was appointed to the Supreme court by President, then President mm -hmm. Trump, mm -hmm. and her nomination process, at least initially, was controversial, partially because, uh, I mean, A, she's, she's a conservative, so that, that guarantees controversy, but yep. then secondly, she's a conservative Catholic who had peculiar leanings, at least in the mind of the mainstream press, towards charismatic Catholicism and a group known as the People of Praise. Mm -hmm. And I borrowed my ti the title of my sermon from that group in part because it fits so well in my context in First Peter, but also because I was uh, kind of wanting to play around with, with the way that the world views people making special commitments to their faith, hmm. which is not kindly. Uh, you know, a, a freak, um, a bigot, um, exclusive are some words that were used at that time to describe this particular, um, uh, what did I call it in, in the message? I don't remember. You've got the, the manuscript there. It's a, an ecclesi a special ecclesial community. Is that the, the phrase? Uh, a, uh, lay, ecclesial, a, a, uh, lay ecclesial movements. Movement. Yeah. And a, a covenant community. And a covenant community. Mm -hmm. So it's not a fraternal order. It's not a monastic order. It's a lay ecclesial movement in the kind of the ecosystem of the Roman Catholic Church. Right. This particular movement includes Protestants, however. Mm. And uh, one of the things that's unique about them is that they uh, follow kind of an, an order or rule of life that I think it follows St. Ignatius of Loyola from, from what I read. Uh, so it's it's a kind of a, a moral order that, like, we're going to stay married and we're going to do this and that and help the poor and so on and so forth. Really crazy, controversial stuff, you know. Um, but the fact that it that it's happening in kind of a middle-class American town in the Midwest to Supreme Court justice, well, that's just completely unacceptable. Bias, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, narrow, will, will you be able to set aside your religious convictions as you weigh on the merits of the law? Well, you know, will you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you said um, people have a problem. I, I, I forget the exact words used, but, you know, people have a problem with people who have uh, faith. Right. What you mean is people who have faith in Christ. It, it's it's a, yeah. The that's, triune God. That's where the people have faith in everything, right. all kinds of things. Right. And in some cases, greater faith than even us as Christians. Right. In, in these false things, 
in these non-gods that they're putting their faith in. But it's a problem when it's conservative or Christian. You know, it's not right. so much a problem when it's uh, faith in social movements or, mm-hmm. you know, a- anyway. Need so to, we're not I, a political podcast. No, but but I did want to touch on that because it 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 does help us. There's some strategy there, Tim, because we're going to be getting into some politics in First Peter pretty soon, and so we we need to we need to be able to to be somewhat uncomfortably comfortable with mm-hmm. the political question. On the other hand, it does strike me in this particular part of Peter, verses 4 through 10 of chapter 2, how radically spiritual the calling of the church is. We are called to be a people of praise, not a political movement. Mm. So our job is to declare the excellencies of of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light by this way that we radically live together as a people of praise. And, and that's both foundation and engine of, um, of, our, of our missionary calling. You know, we're, we're not called necessarily to have opinion on the Supreme Court justice, but yet the interface between our our calling of declaring the excellencies of God and the city in which we live and all of its, you know, drama, which is what, what we could say is of the political world that we live in. There is, there is an inter- interface between declaring the glory of God and politics. Mm-hmm. So, well, there has to be. Because yeah. we, live in the, we live in the world. You know, we're not separate from it. Even Peter writing to the exiles, right? The exiled church in the first century. Mm-hmm. I remember when, when was first Peter written? Yeah, first century. From what I've read, and I'm not a church historian, nor am I an ancient his, historian, but, you know, the little bit I know, I, I would venture to guess that there's not as much dissimilarity as we might expect between the culture against the Christians at that point in time and the culture against the Christians right now. Yeah, I think I you're mean, right. Not, not obviously identical, and, but... And, and some, some of us have a secular vocation in the political sphere, and that includes someone who has a, a kind of a... If you're an executive, you're constantly inter- interfacing with politicians, with your business. If even if you're um, a laborer of some kind, mm-hmm. you got to deal with town zoning, you know, requirements and permitting requirements and all kinds of things. So, you know, the mayor, the town council, and the rules that they pass in terms of like building code enforcement and stuff is is absolutely political. So, you know, if, if the mayor's brother runs a concrete business in town and he gets a, a pass on some of the inspections for, his, for the, the quality of the concrete that he's pouring because of his relationship with the mayor, that's, that's politics. Mm-hmm. 
And part of me declaring the excellencies of God says, that's a crime and that should not be allowed. And if I'm boxed out of the political process because people find out I'm a Christian just because I'm calling out a crime, well, then that's part of the suffering that I have to endure. So there, mm-hmm. there is, a, mm-hmm. there is a, an imp- important interface between politics and faith. But then we also need to find a way to focus on declaring the excellencies of God and not just getting enmired, enmeshed, or, or kind of stuck in the mire of, of just this old, tired, boring, and very unedifying political r- banter that goes on all the time. It's like a low-level, low-grade fever. Mm. Or at times it spikes, right? Yeah. Politics. So it's not an easy question. No, I think it's... um, I mean, to oversimplify it maybe, it's a call to repentance in our own life to allow God to chip away at us the things that are not suited or suitable for his kingdom and then to like love people like be the church you know like it doesn't mean like hey let's hem ourselves in until christ returns it's um be lawyers be doctors be mayors be neighbors be neighbors you know um you said it I don't, th- I don't know if we were recording at the point, but you said, you know, Chris, your dad says Christianity is a team sport. Right. Well, that implies that there is a, another team on the, fi- on the field that you're interacting with. True. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have a, a magnum opus on this or, or answers, but... It seems to me like faithful being faithful in what we what we've talked about the past couple of weeks genuinely loving one another growing grace with one another mm-hmm. and declaring the excellencies of God doing those things individually as family units as a church by default is going to have an impact on the world around us there's no way that it doesn't and the world will stumble you know that's a phrase from our text too Mm. and um when they when they hear about Christ in our lives and the fact that we celebrate him as the, the cornerstone or the capstone, which is to say, I, I read one, one pastor described that as, if you don't know, if you can't visualize that, then picture a baseball field. The first thing that goes down when you're laying out a baseball field is home base. And then you run the foul lines off the back edge mm-hmm. of either side of that five-sided figure of home base and so that's that's the faith are those foul lines and we we stay inside the foul lines which is to say we we're gauging our lives off of we're kind of marking what we do and what we don't do and some people are going to say that's not how you play the game they're going to try to play outside the lines and they're going to be offended that we aren't okay with that 
and sometimes I know I myself try to play outside the lines and the Lord lovingly calls me back mm. when I'm not, you know, measuring my life off of the cornerstone, drawing my life from the cornerstone, uh, identifying myself primarily with him instead of with, you know, the other rocks in my life. Uh, so, hmm. um, being ashamed of being identified with the cornerstone is the opposite of the way we're called to live in society, and yet that's the temptation, I think. And I, I, I don't know if you heard the emphasis in the message on young people and teenagers, but mm -hmm. uh, I, I think teenagers, particularly perhaps our teens, struggle with being ashamed of being Christians at times. And I don't know how many of our teens are listening to the podcast, but what, what how did you uh, take that emphasis and, and do you think it's appropriate? I think it definitely is. I think being a, I mean, I wasn't a Christian as a teenager. I became a Christian when I was, well, I guess I was t technically a teenager. I was late teens, like 17, 18. Um, but being a teen, being a teenager is hard. Period. Period. It yeah. just is hard. And, and I don't know whether it's one of those things where I, even if you feel like it's hard, if you are a teenager, you don't really realize how hard it is until after you're not a teenager and you look back and went, that was hard, you know? And thank and, God it's over. Yeah. Yeah. In many, in many respects. Um, and to add an additional challenge of, um, being on the outside, which is such an like anti-teen thing to to kind of like embrace, right. you know, right. like oh, I'm on the outside. Yay! You know, even the even the teenagers who are on the outside are doing it to be on the outside on purpose with, with the other non-conformist in exactly. their club. Exactly. So, um, I I think you spoke, if I recall, directly to the teens who are sitting in the room, in the sanctuary. And, uh, I think the encouragement, um, and to the parents too, I guess, indirectly, did. I'm saying, look, moms, dads, you should not hesitate to hold your children accountable to this high and holy calling difficult as it is. It, it's what they need to learn. Yeah. But you also said, and you got, you got some I don't know if you got an amen. We're, we're a Presbyterian after all, but you, you definitely got some nods and some chuckles mm -hmm. um, from people about, you know, um, we want you to be independent. <laughs> it's not like we're trying to do these things so that way we parent you for forever. We want you to learn so that way you can learn and be on your own. And I don't have teens of my own um, yet, but that is... I think that's an important piece of this too is um, yeah, accountability is important, but it's accountability not because we're trying to like, you know, wag a finger or hold a power play or something along those lines. It's because um, just, just as we need to be held accountable in walking in repentance and walking in holiness from other people in our lives whom we've, um, been vulnerable with and they've invested in us. I mean, I, I feel the same way about my kids. It's like, 
Yeah. I'm doing this for you, not for, for right. my sake. I'm doing it but, for your sake. But it is trick. It's a tricky formula, and I'm speaking as a dad who's parented now six teens, and um, I only have two left in in the teenage mode, mm-hmm. and um, they're rapidly uh, racing towards the finish line of no longer being teenagers. So after this year, I'll just have one. Hmm. And so I'm finally learning how to parent a teenager now that I almost have none. My poor children, the, the first couple teens that I parented, I, I did not do a good job. And so part of the, part of the, if there's a formula, and there isn't, but the, the formula is way too complex for a, a human brain to kind of grasp. But here's some elements that need to be present in parenting teens in a Christian manner. One is you need to know what you believe and, and not have, not be messing around and have, you know, deep existential questions. And that's easier said than done because by the time the average man gets to, we'll just speak for men for a moment, but it applies to women. By the time the average man gets to, to the point where he, ha- he has teenagers, he is um, approaching midlife. And in case you didn't know this, Tim, when you hit your mids, uh, existential questions come up. That's why you find men between ages of 40 and 50 spending ridiculous amounts of money on small red sports cars because they don't know who they are or they don't like who they've been. And they're toying with, literally toying with, you know, the only difference between men and the boys is the size and the cost of their toys. They're toying with being someone different. And we laugh at the the balding, fat balding man driving a small red sports car with the top down. We laugh at him because he looks funny, but it's a deadly serious business that he's about. He's reinventing himself. He's like, my life is halfway over. I don't want to spend the rest of my life driving a Toyota Corolla. Uh, I made all this money and I want to do something with it. I'm tired of all these people taking my money. It's time for me now. That's not the only reason to buy a sports car, but I'm, I'm, you know, making a somewhat artificial example and, and maybe a bit mocking of an example or a, an exaggeratedly negative example to prove the point that a man in his middle age is questioning everything in his reality. And that's not a great environment for a teen to, to grow up in. Yeah. So you want to have a steady hand on the rudder of your little rowboat of life and be steaming with strength into your middle years as a man when your teens are, are, are exploring for themselves what they believe and what they think. And um, the, the last thing they need is a hypocritical Christian who is insecure in himself, which is what some of my older kids had in me. If I could just, that's sort of my, I never went down the path of a sports car and some of these other elements of my, uh, my story. But I've learned that one of the greatest gifts I can give to my kids is a secure faith in Christ, that Jesus loves me, that he knows who I am, even if, even if I don't know who I am, and I can hold on to that. Mm. So that's, in whatever the hyper-complex formula that no man can figure out in parenting a teenager, 
that's one of the elements, is knowing who you are in the Lord. And so, um, as our teens discover their independence, one of the things that's going to keep them coming back to Christ is seeing that Christ actually works in the Middle Ages too. And I don't mean like the Middle Ages of our of the world, but in the Middle Ages of human development, that a mom in her age forty-five or a dad age fifty. Um, Jesus still makes sense to them too. It's still uh, giving a meaningful benefit in this household that we say is Christian home. Mm. And so, yeah, I think, I think we, we want them to grow up, but we want them to grow up in Christ, mm -hmm. even if that doesn't look exactly like we do. And, and the other thing I've learned, and this is another element is formula is, and it goes with it is humility. Because teens are in a great place to actually speak prophetically into their parents' lives. And they're not always good at actually saying it with words. But with their attitudes and the eye-rolling and the, you know, kind of passive-aggressive rebellion against rules and sneaking and lying and hiding and all these other things that teens, we do as teenagers, they're saying something. And, and a smart Christian parent will pay attention to the message instead of getting angry and kind of cracking down. So these are some of the things that I've learned that maybe I would have done different. Um, but I think it points to how hard it is to be a teen who's taking his bearings off the cornerstone when his parents aren't. What do you think, Tim? I'm thinking I'm going to save this podcast episode for, for like 10, ten Tell, years down the line. You're going to replay it? And yeah. Say, Allie, okay, now. Allie, save this file, and we'll put a date on it, and we'll remember to pull it back up in 10 years. <laughs> well, here's the, here's the other. Um, uh, don't wait till they're a teen. Yeah. Because you see teenage behavior even in a three- or four-year-old. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And uh, don't lie to yourself to think you can clamp down on them now because you can, and they'll, and they'll comply. And I think we need structure and rules and so forth, and I think probably way too many parents are permissive in some ways, but um, there's, there's a, a way in which you can allow that the little inner budding teenager to let it to have its expression and keep your sense of humor when they're young, mm. which, again, maybe is something I didn't do as well as I could have. Mm. Well, I'm going to read your own words back to you from your manuscript. And this applies to the teens who are listening and also, I think, to the parents um, and us older. Let me older have it, Christians. Pastor Tim. Yeah. Don't allow Satan to discourage you to the point that you fail to see the eternal value of having undesirable things chipped away from your life. Amen. And I thought when you said that, that was, that was another kind of light bulb moment for me. There's all, I always get a couple in your sermons where it's like, oh, I got, that's when my gaze goes mm -hmm, off and mm -hmm. I start thinking. And um, that was another one for me on Sunday, just thinking, yeah, I grab a whole, I hold on for dear life to those things. And I am being fooled 
to, into thinking that they're worth holding on to. My mom keyed in on that, on that quote too, when she shared with me some of her, sometimes she'll share with me some of her takeaways and she's always very encouraging. And, um, that was one that really hit her in the heart too. Hmm. And that, like I said, I think that applies to teens that are figuring themselves out, you know, and they, adults into, into the adults yep. in the room for sure. So, um, I appreciate as always your insights. Phil. I mean, I joke about, I'm going to save it, but I'm not joking. Like I'll go back and listen and there are tidbits of this kind of, you know, wisdom that you've gleaned as you've looked back over your life as a parent that well, we, I often get to, uh, to take advantage of. That, that's the goal, that only one person has to make the mistake, hopefully. <laughs> but, you know, we did this, uh, last summer we did the, the marriage course. Mm -hmm. And um, we promised not to do any formal teaching, although I preached here and there, and I just, you know, waxed eloquent for a few minutes on parenting a teenager, it sounds like. But we promised to never do any formal teaching on children until our last one has left the nest. So we're probably in the next few years due to do some sort of formal instruction on, on parenting. Uh, the theory being that if all of our children are adults and out of the house, that, that they're, they're ready and available to contradict anything that we might say <laughs> that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. He's lying. Well, you could write write a book and and give each kid a chapter to write. That's, or I could teach the course on parenting with, with my children who are parents. You got a couple of years. You yeah, got a couple of years. To yeah, mull, to mull that one over. Although we are seeing with with our oldest child who has children of her own, we're seeing the, just the massive upgrade in skill that she's bringing to her work than the than, than that we did mm -hmm. and I attribute that both to the grace of God and the fact that she married well so her husband is a good partner with her in that but it's a pleasure to see our children continue the good things that we taught them and uh, ditch the bad things mm -hmm. that were not helpful mm -hmm. and you, you do see that by the way this is another little uh, nugget for not just teenagers, but parenting children who are, you know, fully on their own and married and starting their own lives and households. You see that in the, in the choice of a spouse too. You see the wisdom of, of, of your children exceeding your own wisdom in, in the way that they choose their spouse and the way that they kind of choose to start their lives. Hmm. Declaring the excellencies of God. Yeah, even in the selection of a mate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a high calling for us, you know. People of praise. It is a high calling. I think we've got a lot of room to grow here, but it's, it, it's, a fu it's fun to, for me to imagine our church getting better at this. And I, I literally mean it, I, it's... It's fun. Like, I, th I think there should be something fun and pleasurable and exciting and thrilling about getting better at being the, a people that declares God's excellencies.
Well, I'm, I'm thankful to, um, to be a part of that at Mercy Hill, you know, to being committed to, to growing as a church in that way and to being um, better people with better, with better praise, if I could put it that way, um, or more praise, or uh, you can add a lot of different mm-hmm. adjectives there. But yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. So, I agree. Um, I, <clears throat> excuse me. I am a little disappointed that the miniseries is over, but I look forward to the <laughs> the rest of the sermon series in First Peter. I know that there's going to be a lot of other good and difficult things coming down the pike. I, I know the letter well enough to know that mm-hmm. you know there's going to be some. Well, and, and as I mentioned, the next major section of the letter is the household code. Right. But we're going to be caught up in that household code with some controversy, slaves being one, wives submitting to their husbands being another, wives being married to unbelieving husbands. Um, so we're going to need all the bandwidth that we have in our kind of pulpit time Mm-hmm. to address those controversies rather than these general principles of Christian community. So that's part of the rationale in concentrating on them up front. Yeah. I mean, Peter does so as well. Mm-hmm. But everything that we've learned about Christian community is going to come to bear on these controversial topics as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's a... Fu- it's a- it's a foundation, you know. It to really use more is. House or yeah. building imagery. It really is a foundation. <clears throat> You're right. So keep it in line with the cornerstone. Mm-hmm. Um, wonderful conversation with you as always, Phil. I never know how to end these things because I really don't want to end them. I'll be honest. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'll 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 throw out my uh, <laughs> my personal convictions or my personal proclivities out for everybody it's always difficult for me to go now might be the time to end this episode or maybe five more minutes or maybe five more minutes or maybe five more minutes because i really uh covet your time and and talking about these things and it's um you know you 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 just said <clears throat> that it's fun to think about our church getting better i think about monday mornings go oh, it's fun it's fun mm-hmm. to think about getting together with phil and talking about the sermon um so thank you once again for the conversation today. Um, we'll do it next. Actually, we have a we have a guest preacher. We this do coming Sunday. We do. So we will endeavor, Lord willing, to to have him join us for next week's episode. We'll try out some new techie things. Hopefully, it all goes well. Forgive us in advance <laughs> if it doesn't. If we have some glitches, but we'll do our best. Um, That'll be a fun conversation to have. And I know you're away this upcoming Sunday, so we'll be praying for you, those in Mercy Hill. Thank you. For your, your trip and your safe return. Any parting thoughts or things, nuggets of wisdom or things for our listeners to be uh, chewing on this week? Well, I, I pulled this quote out, which didn't make it into the message, but this is um, Calvin describing, this is in his preface to the New Testament. It's describing creation 
um, praising God. And it seems fitting, maybe, quote, to end a mm. conversation about being the people of praise. The quote is, the little singing birds are singing of God. The beasts cry unto him. The elements are in awe of him. The mountains echo his name. Mm. The waves and fountains cast their glances at him. Grass and flowers laugh out to him. Nor indeed need we labor to seek him afar, since each of us may find him within himself, inasmuch as we are all upheld and preserved by his power dwelling in us. Mm -hmm. So he's set us up very well to be the people of praise. And I think we just need to work on um, finding our spot in creation's choir. Mm. Amen. That's a great way to end. Thanks for that. Um, in fact, I'd like to get a copy of that. Maybe I'll put it up in our, our show notes because that's a really eloquent yeah, it way is. to capture it. So thanks to everyone who listened this week. Thanks again to you, Phil, for your time this morning. Um, we will be with you again next week. And until then, God bless. Have a great day. <laughs>